spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Time to sit around the campfire and tell some spooky stories. It's episode 237 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Yep, it's Halloween week, kind of, here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So let's talk about a show that's going to be premiering on Halloween, actually. It's going to be on CBS All Access. It's Tell Me a Story. As a matter of fact, I got to sit down with a couple of the cast members, Paul Wesley and James Wolk at San Diego Comic-Con this past year. Talk to them about what to expect from this reimagining of the fairy tales, and turns out they're going to be part of the Three Little Pigs story that's going to be happening. So it'll be interesting to dive into that a little bit. Of course, this was before they could really say much about the show, but they've got some pretty interesting takes that I think you really like to hear. Plus, my spoiler-filled review of Daredevil Season 3 going to be coming, but not before we talk some comics. One of them going to be a little spooky, I can tell you that much. So what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Scott Lobdell, and if I wasn't a guest, I wouldn't even be listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Gotta love the sound it makes when you slide out that long box, don't you? You can also fire up the laptop or the tablet because, hey, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. You know I'm a Harley Quinn fan, so when old lady Harley hit the shelves, you know that I had to check that out. So old lady, old lady Harley number one of five from DC Comics, Frank Thierry doing the writing, Anaki Miranda on the art, Eva De La Cruz on the colors, and Dave Sharp on the letters. Great color, too, by the way, by Elena Marset. Now, the story kind of starts in the past. We did, we have seen some Old Lady Harley stuff before, but I'm going to strictly stick to this particular issue. So we get to see part of the past where she, to see how a decision that Harley makes kind of completely changes her future. I am going to do something I don't normally do, and I'm going to give you a spoiler for this book. So, spoiler coming in three, two, one. She kills Penguin with her bare hands. That's basically the decision that she decides to make. In our present day, I think it's the best way you can kind of describe that. So back to non-spoiler territory. Once we get into the future in the world of old Lady Harley, we get to see her once again in trouble after reuniting with Red Tool. Again, that's not really a spoiler. coming. Again, kind of some of that stuff has been out already. And you've seen the preview pages probably. So that's not really a spoiler. Now they do have... Kind of one and miss adventure after another. There's a lot of pop culture references that get dropped with a dig here and there. And then they kind of find themselves in a familiar place for Harley anyway. And even more familiar face comes into play there. Well, at least they thought it was a familiar face. That's one of the minor twists in this book. But something seems very odd in this place that they're at, which you could probably guess. By the way, I'm tiptoeing around it. So they kind of go to the one person who might have the answers as to what's going on or not going on, where they are, and actually who they end up running into might be the most interesting part about this book, other than the fact that this might be a minor spoiler. So again, I normally don't, I know I normally don't do this, but this is going to be one of my criticisms of the book, so I kind of have to talk about it. There's kind of a whole. Is Joker alive or isn't he? And I know that Batman Damned has kind of tiptoed around that same story a little bit. I mean, I understand it's a completely different story 
but it seems like that's something that we're doing a little bit too much right now. And I'm not, I'm sure that the two creative teams didn't necessarily, you know, chat with each other. So it's not like one knew that both was doing the same thing. So I, when I saw that, I was kind of like, eh, I really was hoping that that wasn't much of a focus. And maybe it won't be going forward, but it was a little bit in this book. And that kind of threw me a little bit. Now, here's the thing. The art in this book is great. I'm just going to go out there right now. I, I, especially all the action that happened in the book. And there was a ton of that. I love the, the facial expressions. The lettering in this book is top notch because it really makes certain elements stand out. And, and if it wasn't for the art or the lettering, I'm not sure how much I would have really enjoyed this book. And here's the reason why. I mean, there's not much to get excited about beyond those two things. I mean, if the jokes aren't landing for you, this book really doesn't have much of an edge. And that's one thing I feel like it's been missing from these Harley books is a little bit of an edge. I mean, if you read uh, Heroes in Crisis, the the event series that's going on right now from DC, you have funny Harley. Sure, she you know she certainly has her jokes there as well, but she's got that edge that I feel like she's been missing. And I realize that Harley Quinn's been kind of a straight comedy book almost since Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor have been doing the book. It just seems like we're still continuing that, even though it was kind of a reset of what they were doing when they left the book. But it's really not since Rebirth. Maybe it was for a little bit, but it's not right now. And it's not like what they did was bad because I actually really enjoyed the Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor run on on Harley. But, I mean, it definitely feels like this was a chance to freshen up the brand, especially with this old Lady Harley miniseries. And you're really not doing that at all. I mean, this book doesn't really give you that opportunity it just seems like okay it's the same harley but she looks a little bit a little bit older and there's also some weird stuff going on that we're really not sure about it doesn't feel fresh it doesn't feel different i was really hoping that it would and it pains me to say this but this is a drop for me i am if this is what this book's gonna be i'm out and it's funny because i i love frank Thierry's work I, I I love a lot of what this creative team does, but this one's just a huge miss for me, unfortunately. So I will not be sticking around for any more issues of Old Lady Harley. But if you dig, if you dig what's been going on with Harley, you will probably enjoy this book. It's not that I haven't dug it; I'm just burnt out by it, and I'm ready for something different. Speaking of something a little bit different, since it's going to be Halloween, or if it already, if you're listening to this on Halloween Day on Wednesday. How about we talk about back the backstagers from Boombox and Boom Studios and their Halloween intermission number one. They've done special issues like this before. Of course, this written by James Tin and the fourth, and the illustrations done by Ryan Sai, who are the co-creators of the book. We also have backup stories that are written by Sam Johns and some wonderful various artists and illustrators. You go to the website down in nerdypodcast.com and the and, and I have a page for every episode. We click on click on the link for this book. There'll be a list of the artists that are involved. There's just quite a few, and I don't want to list too too many here. So Walter Biamonte does the colors, and Jim Campbell doing the letters. Now, as I said, this is a collection of stories involving the Backstagers crew. The first one kind of involves a legend at the school. It happens every Halloween where the stage gets locked down, and the only ones that are allowed inside are Tim and Jamie. But you know, you kind of figure that that's not really how that works out. And, you know, Sasha gets involved a little bit in this whole thing, which, again, if you're a Backstagers fan, should not be a su- surprise 
at all. That's what we kind of learned what the legend really is. There's also a nice backstory involved there. You get a younger Tim and a younger Jamie. We get to see some flashbacks there, and that's really, really fun. And, and th- to me, this was the best story of all of them. And I mean, when you've got the regular writing team and art team, it shouldn't really be a surprise. And if you're a fan of these characters anyway, you're really, really going to love this story. And it didn't feel that quick, even though it was quick. It didn't feel too quick. It felt like the story really got a chance to flesh itself out. You got to see some nice interactions from the characters, and it was just fun. But it did kind of continue from there. We had Sam John's stories with uh, one of them involved a a story involving a prop car that's said to be cursed. There was another one about keeping, um, keeping out of the dark sort of thing. Not to put it too plainly, but that's basically the gist of it with kind of a backstager's twist. There's also another story about why you should always tell the truth, even if it isn't easy. And it is a play off of a classic scary tale. And that's all I'm going to tell you. It will be completely obvious, especially when you see the end of this story, which one I'm talking about, but I don't want to give it away. So you get a chance to see it. But those are really quick. Those backup stories by Sam Johns are very quick but also very fun. This is definitely, that's the main thing about this book is it's fun. If you're already a Backstagers fan, it's really, really good for younger age groups. Not really going to creep you out or anything, even at a younger age. It's just really fun stories. And there's some good lessons in there as well, especially for younger readers. If you want to see them, or if you're, if you're a parent that's, you know, reading these with your kids, you want to point these out. That, that's also a good thing. This is one of those things you could sit down and read with your son or your daughter. Not only feel safe about what you're reading and not going to creep them out or anything like that, but there's some good lessons in there as well. Definitely a great comic strip feel. I always love a good comic strip feel in a book every now and then. And while this is kind of a little bit of a departure from what usually happens in the backstagers, it, it's still got that fun vibe. Again, if you're a fan of the books, new readers can also have fun with these characters. You get a pretty good idea about a pretty good idea about them without actually having to get any real backstory or anything. So that's the good news. This is something you could jump right into and enjoy. Since this is a single issue, I can't really say put it in your pull. I'm sure that you've if you've already done that if you're enjoying Backstagers. But this is a fun little Halloween book you could add to the collection, and I think you'd be able to enjoy pulling this one out every Halloween. So I would say go ahead and buy Backstagers Halloween Intermission. Number one from Boom Studios and Boombox. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of these comics this week. Up next, time to go spoiler-filled, and we'll start with my Season 3 review of Daredevil. And that's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Nobu, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to find out if the Devil of Hell's Kitchen really is born again. It's my spoiler-filled review of the season of season three of Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix. I know this is kind of an uneasy time for Marvel and Netflix right now. Well, let's just focus on the good, shall we? And there was a lot of good in Daredevil season three. I am not going to go through every little scene and plot point. I'm just going to talk about certain things as a microcosm of the entire season. I'm not going to spoil the ending either. So that I know that I said spoiler fill, but I just don't like spoiling endings of things, especially if you're not quite caught up. I'm going to be talking about stuff that you've probably already seen, but aren't. But if you're not quite caught up, or if you just haven't quite seen the end yet, I don't want to spoil that for you. So don't worry about spoiling me spoiling the ending. What I will say is, and yes, this is a kind of a loose interpretation of the Born Again arc for Daredevil and Matt Murdock. So I will start there. I will start with the fact that just 
it's basically Matt picking up the pieces of what's happened to him in the defenders and you get to see kind of how he survives that, which I thought was really, really cool and interesting. And then of course he ends up back at the church with father Lantham and he gets taken care of and nursed back to health by sister Maggie, who eventually I remember spoilers here. You kind of knew though, from the very, very beginning that that was going to be Matt's mom. Right? So we get to see him basically deciding who he wants to be, what he wants to be, and if he wants to be Daredevil again, or if he wants to be Matt Murdock again. And it's that internal struggle that I really, really loved. And Charlie Cox was absolutely amazing once again in this season. That push and pull of, does he want to be Daredevil? Does he want to be Matt Murdock? Does he want to be both? And do either of these identities have any sort of value or identity left in them. And to see him broken down to his almost to literally to his breaking point at certain times was pretty incredible. And then to see him sort of rise from the ashes and get to see him in that, in that, you know, early season one suit again, if you even want to call it a suit costume, whatever you want to call it, To see him in that again, it just made everything feel so fresh, like a reset, like, okay, this is why I fell in love with Daredevil in the first place. And not that there was anything wrong with season two, which I also thought was great. But this feels like, you know, in the third season, you're freshening things up and you don't even really need to do that after three seasons. But it really, really felt fresh. Not only that, I mean, you're bringing Wilson Fisk back. It's almost like you're saying, okay, I know that some stuff went down, but it's not like we forgot about this. You dealt with the hand after the defenders. That's done. So it's time to clean up the mess that is Wilson Fisk. And that is kind of what Matt wants to do is he wants to take care of Fisk. And once he finds out what's going on with Fisk, that's where his focus is, is in cleaning that up. And then to see the struggle that he has to go through to do that in a basically a compromised state. It seems like the entire season he's compromised in some way. It's like watching somebody in sports who's a great athlete, you know, the one of the best athletes you've ever seen, but they're slightly compromised. So you know what their potential is, but they can't fully be there. But yet watching them hold their own and fight through that is just so awe-inspiring. And that's exactly what this season felt like for Matt Murdock. But then you also have some of the other characters really, really coming into their own. As a matter of fact, like, like Elton Henson, who plays Foggy, really, it's Foggy really steps up and comes into his own in this season. Doesn't he? You see that writing campaign that he has for district attorney. He's really standing on his own two feet and he, he has this presence about him. And even in a moment of crisis, he steps up. In a big, big way when there's that shooting at the bulletin, it's unbelievable how he was able to, I, I say keep it together. Of course, he breaks down a little bit at some point when he, go, when he goes home to Marcy and the adrenaline sort of wears off. But I love the commanding presence that was Foggy and we get to see more into his family life as well and, the, and everything that he has to deal with there. And you look at Foggy and you go, how does this guy hold it together and how does he do it so well? Especially with, I mean, his best friend, practically his brother, 
disappearing, thought dead. And then even when he finds out that he's not dead, how you have to process that. So Foggy has to go through quite a lot in such a short amount of time. And then, of course, you've got Fisk getting his hands in his life as well. But if he gets his hands in anybody's life, it's Karen's. Of course, Deborah Ann Wool. We get to see a little bit about her backstory as well. And I will say this, that I think you either felt sorry for Karen or you wished better things for Karen at least, or you said good for her for being so strong after all that she's been through. And I'm not saying that I don't, and I really, really did. Like when she calls her dad after what happened at the, at the Bulletin and wants to come home and her dad's like, ah, it's not a good time. I, my heart broke for her. It's like, man, she's got nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, and nobody to turn to. Then you get the flashback of what happened in Karen's past and what happened with her dad and with her brother and that whole situation. And I got to tell you, the sympathy level for me, for Karen, pretty much went down after that. I'm not saying that anybody, that she deserves what happened to her in the present day and, and what happened to her, everything with Fisk and everything even before that. I'm not saying that she deserved any of that by any stretch, but at the same time, you certainly understand why she's not welcome back at home anymore after being involved in in, in her bro- in everything that happened with her brother and basically the whole small town being in turmoil because of something that she did and who she essentially was back then. And you know you don't apologize. You don't necessarily. Maybe she should apologize for the things that she did when she, when she was younger. And she said a bunch of things she couldn't take back as well. So my sympathy level for her definitely dipped a little bit, but at the same time, I respect how she pulled her life together after that, in spite of that. But, you know, her loneliness factor, I mean, is almost on her a little bit, though. You got to admit that. But, I mean, she definitely stands tall plenty, and she never sold Matt out. Even though she thought she did, she never sold him out. And it just shows you the bond that she, Matt, and Foggy really have, even whether they want to or not, that bond is always going to be there. And you get to see that in this season especially, which I thought was really, really great that we got to get a spotlight on that as well. But even before I get to Fisk, I want to talk about Bullseye. Of course, you've got Agent Poindexter, who's played by Wilson Bethel. Maybe the best, other than Fisk, the best origin story for a villain that we've seen certainly on Marvel TV, if not in all of Marvel. The way you watch Fisk slowly but surely push Dex into becoming Bullseye and into following his agenda and being that, I guess you could call it father figure for Dex in in a time where, again, this is another guy who feels like He's got no one to turn to. And the woman that he loves slash wants to help him, wants to have help him put his life together, he's creeped her out and crossed lines and she kind of abandons him at the same time. So he he really kind of starts to lose it again. And you find out that, you know, he had a very troubled childhood. And even with his therapist and everything, this kid had serious, serious problems and he just keeps getting pushed more and more. And more, and then he becomes full bullseye. And when he does, my goodness, it's such a, a tragic but incredible thing to watch to see 
that transformation and to see how that whole thing unfolds. And the fight scenes between Bullseye and Daredevil were just so amazing. And you think, you know, as good as the fight choreography was at, when, when they were battling the hand, this just seemed primal and raw, didn't it? These battles between Bullseye and Daredevil. And that's what I loved about them so much. And again, it gets you back to that first season where everything was kind of raw and primal, right? And nothing was really organized to a certain extent, but it was. It still felt, you know, really, really solid. The, the fight choreography is solid and always has been on Daredevil. But there was just something a little bit more in this one that was like grungy and grimy, if that makes sense at all. It was just that transformation into Bullseye was so, so amazing. And you almost felt for, for Dex a little bit, didn't you? You almost did, but you couldn't just because of how bad he was. The guy I felt for, though, was Agent Nadim. If you've ever been held down at your job for whatever reason, you had to kind of identify with Agent Nadim, right? This is a guy that, you know, he goes into work, he does his job every day to the best of his ability, expects to be rewarded for that, and just kind of isn't, right? He's got a family to support. Things aren't necessarily going swimmingly there. He loves his family so much, but he's just not getting ahead like he wants to. And then you see the opportunity with the whole Fisk thing, and then it goes down, and it seems like everything's great, and then all of a sudden, nope. Not only has he been pulling the strings for Fisk and didn't realize it, his boss is is tied into this whole thing, and there's other agents that are kind of in Fisk's pocket. And again, this is one of those things where, where Agent Nadim could have just packed it up, right? He could have done nothing. And instead, he pushes through. And, you know, he puts himself at risk and, and in a larger extent to his family at risk because he wants to do the right thing. And despite everything that's happened to him in his career, when he could have just said, you know what? Screw it. I'm not doing this. It's not worth it. I'm going to find something else to do, be some, and something else that I'm going to end up doing. No, no. He decides to fight on and press on just because it was the right thing to do. And I respected the hell out of him for that. Did he make mistakes? Absolutely he made mistakes. But at the end of the day, what Agent Nadim wanted to do was the right thing. And it was really hard for him to trust basically anybody. And after what happened to him, you really couldn't blame him for that, right? So the fact that he, A, wanted to do the right thing, and B, do anything he could to protect his family, I can't even begin to talk about how much I respect Agent Nadim for that. So I really, really enjoyed JLE's portrayal of Agent Nadim. It just seems like everybody's individual performances were so, so good. And then you get to Vincent D'Onofrio. And we finally get to hear him called Kingpin because that's his FBI code name, which I thought that was a very clever way to bring that in. He probably is the best villain in the Marvel Universe right now. I, I know Thanos can snap his fingers and make people turn to dust. But Wilson Fisk doesn't need to touch anybody to completely command what he's doing. He's so smart, and he's so sinister. And I think there was a point where Matt Murdock says, he's always five steps ahead of me. And that's the beauty part. He found a way for the FBI to take down his competition. So behind the scenes... He could kind of pay off the FBI agency he needed to pay off and then control 
absolutely every aspect of the criminal underground in Hell's Kitchen. It was so brilliant. I mean, until it wasn't, you know, because there's that. But, I mean, just the way he goes about that. But then at the same time, when he needs to throw down, he could throw down. This is a guy that got shanked in prison on purpose. And that could have gone south for him. Because you remember that whole battle in the jail when he was getting when he was getting shivved. That still could have gone bad for him. And it didn't. He crushed that dude when he got the opportunity. And then he tied up the loose end after that by using Dex. I mean, sometimes the brilliance of a villain is all it takes. But then at the same time, you kind of understand why he's doing what he's doing. And it makes you angry because you don't want to understand it. But you really, really do. You don't root for the dude, but you certainly understand why he's doing what he's doing. And his motives are pure in his mind, as are most villains. But for him especially, he feels like this is legit the right thing to do. And that's what makes it scary and great all at the same time. So if you can find a better villain in the MCU right now than Wilson Fisk, please step up and let me know because I've got nothing. You could play the Thanos card, and I wouldn't blame you if you did. But I'm going to argue that Kingpin Wilson Fisk can hold his own against any villain in Marvel and maybe even in DC right now. And DC is definitely doing a decent job in the villain department. If you want to go through the Arrowverse, I mean, maybe that's a conversation for another day. But Wilson Fisk absolutely positively is once again amazing. And I think I've said that word so many times. And one of the crushing, there were two crushing moments in this for me and both involved members of the clergy. First of all, when Father Lantum sacrifices himself to save Karen when Bullseye sort of raids the church, I wasn't necessarily surprised when it happened, but it still hits you hard, right? Especially after what went down with him and Matt, because Matt found out, hey, you've been hiding the fact that my mom's been here the whole time. But then we find out what happens with Matt's mom, right? With Maggie, because you get to see why she left the family. And it's something that you don't see dealt with a lot. It's the whole postpartum depression thing in the time that it happens. And I thought it was beautiful how they they did it quickly, though. They did it so quickly, but beautifully at the same time, because that's not something that's a lot of play on TV and in movies. And it's a real thing. That happens to women, and it can be a scary thing for families. And I like how there was a spotlight put on that. It was a quick one, but it was there. And how do you reconcile that as an adult who was the child that was left behind and the father who's now died who also was left behind? And that story really, really was tragically crushing for me, but again, beautifully done. Daredevil just, I don't know how they do it. They keep managing to up their game. I don't know if this is going to stay on Netflix, go to Disney Play. be done. But if it, if it ends here, it's been a great ride and I'll be happy. But I could watch 10 seasons of Daredevil and be completely stoked. This is a 10. Throw whatever you've got near you because you are a bullseye out of 10 for Daredevil Season 3. No questions asked. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Daredevil Season 3. Up next, going to keep the spoilers flowing and the Season 4 premiere of Legends of Tomorrow. I'll talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Sierra Nay, and I play Hawk Girl on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Do you believe in magic of time travel, Legends of Tomorrow? I'm completely not sorry for singing just then because it is the spoiler-filled review that we have of Season 4, the premiere of Legends of Tomorrow that just happened. And yes, we are entering the magical realm when they let Malice out, just like Constantine said. That wasn't the only thing that got out. And one of the first things that we see get out, again, spoiler-filled from here on out, is a unicorn. And this is not your Pinkie Pie that you know. No, no, this is unicorn that impales people and shoots out this, you know, psychedelic glitter stuff that makes people hallucinate and trip on what's almost like LSD sort of thing, and how appropriate that this all happens at Woodstock. And, you know, again, I'm not going to go through every little thing about this episode, but I will say, I mean, well, well, it definitely had its fun moments. It just seemed like a little bit of a slow start. For Legends of Tomorrow. It, I mean, it, it wasn't really... I mean, it certainly had a fun vibe. And everything's going great for the Legends. Everything's going great with, with, with Sarah and Ava. Their relationship is certainly progressing. And they're doing the whole do we want to move in together thing. Which was really, really great. By the way, I do love their relationship. I mean, of all the failed attempts at love that Sarah has had over the seasons in Arrow... And, and anything else that she's been in and the crossovers. This seems to be the one that really feels like it fits the best. And this seems like the one you, I really want this to stick to the point where, I mean, what do what the kids say now? I ship this. So if, if this doesn't get shipped, I guess, I will really feel for this one because this seems like the one that should work, right, between Sarah and Ava. So I really, really hope that, the, and, and we see that, that there could have been some kinks, and this right because Sarah doesn't tell that they kind of screwed up and let all these magical creatures out. Now, she already knew, thanks to Gary, who got his nipple bit off. But that's another story for another day. But, I mean, and she said, you know, I don't care. I wasn't happy about it, but I don't care. And that's the relationship that they've already built together. So I really, really hope that this one works out. But I, one th- one other surprising thing was, you know, there's, the legends are celebrating that Everything's good now. Of course, this is before they find out about the unicorn and all these magical creatures. And then you see Nate and and Mick, which is a pairing that really, really was a lot of fun. I didn't expect it to be with them two together, but it was. And, you know, Mick wants to go do some criminal mischief, so Nate kind of joins him. And they kind of fake break in to Nate's parents' house, which I thought was really, really funny when they got busted. Plus, I love Nate's mom. Nate's mom was the best. She just kind of went 
with everything. But then you see Biff come in. And I know that he would kill me for saying that because, you know, he doesn't want to feel like he's Biff all the time. But, you know, I, I, I cannot see Thomas and not see Biff. I'm, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. But you get to see Nate and basically it's his dad. And you get to see that their relationship is really, really fractured. And that is, that's a serious point in this episode that I wasn't really seeing coming. And Thomas F. Wilson, who looks like we're going to be seeing a lot more of him, is the father of the kid where it's like, you know, you could have been this. You know, he really wanted his son to enlist and make something of himself. And he becomes a historian. And he feels like that's not a money-making occupation. So it's a it's not a father-son story that we haven't seen before. But there was just something about it that just seemed really, really genuine. And then when you get to see Nate try and make peace with his dad a little bit later on on in the episode, it looks like they're going to try and piece that relationship back together. They could have dragged that out, and they didn't. And I thought that was an interesting choice, and I thought it was probably the right one. And I'm sure there'll be some ups and downs to this, and there's going to probably be more of the relationship than you realize. I'm sure Dad will find out what Nate really does at some point. But for right now, I like the I like where that is going, and I love the innocence of it. And then you get back to the fun of you know we find out that Ray's kind of got a thing for Nora Dark, so he's been looking for her, and they all end up in Hippieville for different reasons in in Woodstock, and to find this unicorn, and that's the fun part about it. Once the team gets together, because the team wasn't really together for a lot of this episode, it just seems like you know the whole saying better together. They are definitely better together. Not that some of the storylines that they had individually or in pairs wasn't interesting, but once you get them together, that's when the fun really, really starts and the way that they could play off of each other. And that is the strength of this show, is having them together and playing off of one another. And then you get to see, if you wondered how Constantine and Matt Ryan were going to fit into this whole thing, and you get to see how Sarah sort of brings him in, and then Constantine's cocksure attitude that's coming into things. It really, really works with this team dynamic, especially when they're, I can't believe I'm saying this, battling the unicorn. When you get to see them taking care of business with this unicorn, first of all, you see how necessary Constantine is. Second of all, you get to see how his dynamic plays with the team. We saw that a little bit last season, but you really, really get to see how he would fit in and how his kind of sarcastic humor is going to fit in with the team. You don't get to see a whole lot of interaction with all the members of the team, but I know that like him and Mick especially, you heard from the from the interviews that we did last week, I think that one's going to be a really, really interesting one going forward. And you get to find out where he kind of doesn't want to be a part of the team, and that shouldn't be any surprise if you know the Constantine character. I like that they kind of kept with that. So that was my question too. It was like, okay... You know he's going to be a part of this team. Constantine's never really been a team guy. He'll help out if it benefits him, but he's not really a team guy. How's this going to work? Well, you kind of do see how it's going to work, and you find out that whoever the quote-unquote big bad is going to be, if there is going to be one, that big bad is coming directly for John Constantine, as you see in the end of the episode. So that'll be an interesting onion to peel as the season goes on. But... Again, just when the team gets together, they are at their strongest. And when they are apart, it's not quite as strong, but still can be a lot of fun. And there's a couple of interesting side storylines that we can follow. So while I didn't think Legends of Tomorrow had the strongest 
debut of the season for an Arrowverse show. It was certainly one to watch. And, and that's kind of how things started out last season with Legends, didn't it? Where it seemed like it was starting off a little slow and maybe you're worried this could be it for Legends this past season. And then they just kind of kicked it in high gear. And the last part of the season really was a lot of fun and it made sense. And the lovable losers, the lovable screw-ups were really, really shining. And I really started to love Legends of Tomorrow again. And I'm kind of hoping that this first episode was kind of a stage setter. And it feels like it probably was. And that we will get to see more. Plus, we haven't even seen Charlie yet. Maisie Richardson Zeller's character. I haven't even seen get to see her come into play yet. So it doesn't feel like all the cards have been dealt for DC's Legends of Tomorrow yet. So I'm going to hold off on judgment. But I'm still definitely down for continuing to watch DC's Legends of Tomorrow. It's not like I was thinking about dumping the show or anything, but it's definitely off to a little bit of a slow start. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Season 4 premiere of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, but there is some nerd news to tend to. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is writer Mike Johnson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. If you're going to go, you might as well go boldly. It's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is because, yep, another new Star Trek series is going to be coming to CBS All Access, but probably not the one that you're thinking. A new animated comedy series is going to be coming from writer, a head writer, actually, for Rick and Morty and executive producer Mike McMahon. And that is going to be on CBS All Access, and it's going to focus on the lowest-ranking crew members on the lesser-known ships in Starfleet. It's actually called Star Trek Lower Decks, which I think is a pretty clever title. Of course, Alex Kurtzman's going to be involved since he's all things Star Trek right now. And you also have a few other familiar names, including Rod Roddenberry. Now, first, at first, I thought to myself, you know, is this something we asked for? Is this something that we really need? And the more and more I thought about it, actually, the more and more I warmed up to the idea of like, you know what, maybe this is a chance to do something a little bit different with the franchise. Break from the norm a little bit. You know, I've, I've had complaints before where I was saying, you know, it's the same thing over and over and over again. Why can't we do something different? And maybe this is that something different. Do something That's a comedy. Don't focus on the characters that we all already know about. And if you're going to take a risk, you might as well take a risk with an animated series like this. Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, it's it's a low risk, high reward type of thing. Because, you know, just like for something like Rick and Morty, if that strikes gold, great. If it doesn't, I mean, you've got a few other animated series that you might be able to put in its place that might do a little bit better. But Rick and Morty just happened to catch a great fan base, and now it's one of the most popular animated series on television. Why can't that happen for this and for CBS All Access, especially since you're going all in on Star Trek anyway? You might as well try and do something a little bit different instead of trying to beat the same drum over and over and over again. So, I like the idea. Maybe it's good, maybe it won't be, but it doesn't really affect a whole lot. It's not. We don't know if it's going to be canon or anything like that, or how much canon is it's going to involve. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of shots taken at regular characters and stuff like that. It's not like it's going to be completely out of the ordinary. But, I mean, as long as the story's good and it's funny, what difference does it make, right? So hopefully that is the case. Now, here's something that might be worth getting excited about as well, and this is from a little teaser 
that was released. Of course, Teen Titans Go to the Movies is finally on shelves. And looks like we're going to be seeing the return of the original animated Teen Titans as well. There's going to be a Teen Titans versus Teen Titans Go animation project. And I'll tell you why I say it that way here in a second. This, of course, was confirmed by io9 with warner brothers now this is the return of something that was someone hinted in the teen titans go to the movies movie saying that the other teen titans were trapped in some other dimension or something like that and now it is confirmed by io9 it's going to be happening in 2019 but here's the thing we don't know if it's going to be just an event series it's part of teen titans go is this going to be a new animated feature, animated direct-to-DVD, Blu-ray type release? Not sure. Maybe maybe even DC Universe type thing. It, it's not exactly sure what this is going to be, but I'm not even sure it really matters because I think that this would be interesting on how that they, these two things would play off of each other. And, you know, it says versus, but, you know, these versus things don't end up really being versus most of the time. And, and I'm fine with that. They don't have to fight each other. I just think it would be funny to see how they play off of and interact with one another, especially after seeing Teen Titans go to the movies. I think that this is something that could really work and be a lot of fun. And now, granted, this is this is kind of a niche thing. I mean, if you're a fan of the original Teen Titans series or, you know, a fan of Teen Titans Go, or if you, you know, you have those lines that cross a little bit there, I mean, or if you just love these characters, you're going to be in for this more than likely, right? Or maybe this is something that, you know, older brothers and younger brothers can bond over or fathers and sons, something like that. You know, people that were fans of one or the other and then you come together and watch this and it's a it's a bonding moment. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I love about nerd culture is there's so many bonding moments and this just gives us another one of those. So... I mean, again, this is a low-risk, high-reward thing, once again for me. And it's not just because it's animation. I'm not saying animation doesn't cost money, because it certainly does plenty. But, I mean, I don't know what you really lose by doing this. And maybe you also gauge interest in, okay, how much interest is there really in the original Teen Titans animated series? And is this something that we might want to bring back on a more regular basis? And again, something maybe for DC Universe. They're doing Young Justice. Why not consider doing this as well, if it's popular enough? So... I think that this is just as much to t- test the waters for that it is, as it is for anything else. There's been a lot of animation news this week, actually. And going back to Netflix once again, this one actually surprised me at first. And again, the more I thought of it, not so much. Disenchantment has been, re- has been renewed. The Matt Groening series been renewed for two more seasons at Netflix. And at first I thought, what the hell? Are you kidding me? So you're dropping Iron Fist. You're dropping Luke Cage. So other shows dropping like flies. And a show that I was, for the most part, disappointed with in Disenchantment and was underwhelmed by gets renewed for two more seasons. Now, I, I realize that this isn't James's playlist that Netflix has thrown out here and they're not going to base everything on what I think. But I didn't see this huge response, critically or from fans, for Disenchantment either. And th- there's been rumors based on a couple of reports that one of the reasons that Luke Cage and Iron Fist got canceled was because of the less social media chatter that the shows had. I didn't see a whole lot of social media chatter for Disenchantment. Maybe I'm wrong. You want to throw some hard numbers at me? Tweet me at down in nerdy seven five seven. Feel free. Throw those hard numbers at me because I did not see it. We're still waiting for the end of the first season 
of Disenchantment. Kind of had a little bit of a cliffhanger in the first part. We'll get that in 2019 at some point. I think early 2019. And then it looks like subsequent seasons going to be happening in 2020 and 2021, going back to a more normal 10-episode format. To me, the more I thought about this move and didn't quite get it because it didn't seem like Disenchantment was a runaway hit, even though it's from a big name like Matt Groening, to me, this is a clear sign that Netflix is going to try and distance themselves from companies like Disney to try to focus on content created especially for their platforms or something that they directly have their hands in. Now, there's again, I don't want to get into the whole Luke Cage Iron Fist thing again. And there's been varying reports about what, you know, Disney can now do with these properties and how much power did Netflix have. And Netflix looked like it had the power to renew them. But now that you can't renew something that you've canceled. So now that it's canceled, to me, that's fair game. And I haven't seen any reports that say otherwise. So to me, Disney Play has free reign to do what they want with these characters now, recast them, keep the same cast, whatever. I don't think Netflix can't just cancel a property and then hold it hostage if it's not theirs. You know what I mean? Like, this is still a Marvel property. So, this is a Marvel entity. And once it's canceled by Netflix, they can't just hold on to it for dear life. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think it's like a Batman and Fox deal where Warner Brothers can't just randomly throw Batman on any TV series that they want because of that deal that they made with Fox years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. So you go back to this and you think to yourself, okay, so this is by all, you know, by all definition, a Netflix series. It's produced by a Netflix company, even though it's a Matt Groening property. This is Netflix's deal. Okay, and we're starting to see more and more of their programming very similar to that pop up. I mean, I know they still have Chilling Adventures of Sabrina that just came out with with Warner Brothers, and I'm not saying they're never going to work with anybody like that again. What I'm saying is, is that Netflix doesn't like competition, and who would, right? You know, Warner Brothers is launching their own streaming service soon. You get Disney doing theirs. So to me, this is Netflix covering themselves and saying, look, we're going to bet hard on series that are our babies, and Disenchantment is one of those. And I mean, you've seen the reports from various outlets. They're investing another $2 billion in their original programming. So to me, that gets a little bit more risky when you're talking about stuff like Disenchantment that you know any average Joe on the street's not going to know about. But if you walk to somebody on the street and you say the word Marvel, they're at least going to know what you're talking about. So you know, it gets a little bit tricky from there, but I mean... Netflix has a proven track record of success with a lot of those shows. A lot of the movies they've put out have been decent. Not necessarily a lot of great ones, but there certainly have been plenty of good ones as well. So I don't blame them for trying to distance themselves and betting hard on stuff that's theirs. I mean, you got to do that at some point, right? Because you're going to have that competition from Disney and to a certain extent from Warner Brothers. You've already got that with DC Universe and then the Warner Brothers streaming service going to be coming as well. Why would you help them? Why would you help Warner Brothers? Why would you help Disney? Bet hard on your stuff and see what happens. And you're either going to succeed or fail based on that. One more thing I want to get to before we get to the Tell Me a Story interviews up next is this first look at Bane from Gotham that seems to have the Twitterverse all ablaze. Now, the photo was released by Gotham writer and producer Zay Shun. And the first look is very raw, for sure. I'm not going to say it's not. 
It looks like there's, you know, just like a venom pack on the front and the mask just kind of goes over his face, almost like a surgical mask type deal. It's almost like somebody took Darth Vader's suit and, and mechanics, turned it inside out and slapped it on somebody. That's that's what it looks like to me. And that's not an insult. I'm just legitimately trying to explain how it looks for anybody that hasn't seen it. Now, at the same time, what did you expect? And I'm not saying that as because I've lo- you know how much I love Gotham, but what fans need to realize is, and I don't think fans get this, especially when you're talking about a prequel series. This is a first look at a first draft of a suit from a villain. It's not like the Riddler, where if you took home ec in junior high school, you're good to go. You sew a couple things on a jacket or something, and you could just roll out. There's some intricate mechanics involved here in Bane's suit and everything that goes along with Bane. Like, first look at Mr. Freeze. Victor Freeze didn't get his suit right the first time. It took a couple different times before the suit sort of evolved, and it ended up looking pretty good, did it not? Again, same thing with Scarecrow. That look evolved on Gotham and ended up looking pretty good. Mad Hatter, should I go on? Gotham certainly has a track record of being able to get these looks correct. So why is it that the Twitterverse seems to be freaking out over this look at Bane? I get it. And, you know, maybe the argument is Bane, A, shouldn't be that old, and B, maybe shouldn't be on the show in the first place. I understand that, but I think that they've kind of thrown that out the window. I think Gotham has thrown all that cannon out the window from the beginning, and they make no apologies for it because this is who they are. This is who they have been for four seasons. There's no way they're going to de- deviate from that in a fifth season just you have to let Gotham be Gotham. And I'm not going to make you love the show. If you don't, I understand it. I love the show. But I have loved Gotham for what it is from the beginning and never looked at it and said, you know what? I don't know how they did that, except for aging Ivy, even though they explained it, I thought that was still a little weird. So other than doing that, I, I kind of get where they're going with everything else. And, and I'm just going to sit back and enjoy this final season or what we think. Is the final season. You know, with all these streaming services, who knows what might happen, right? Well, that's going to do for Nerd News. Up next, going to tell you a story, or at least talk to the actors behind CBS All Access's Tell Me a Story. That is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's another case of fairy tales being reimagined when Tell Me a Story comes to CBS All Access on Halloween night. Wednesday, October the 31st at San Diego Comic-Con. I got to sit down with stars Paul Wesley and James Wolk to talk about the show. And the first question that came up was, what is your experience with fairy tale stories and how will they be brought to life on the show? It's the power of storytelling. And when you're a kid, you, you begin to use your imagination. I remember my grandparents used to tell me stories. And a lot of them were just like from their own imagination. And uh, I would imagine it allows a child to kind of just really see the world in their own illustrated minds. Um, for me, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, my grandparents did the same thing. My parents used to drop me off at their house. My grandfather would tell us stories before we went to sleep and he'd make them up 
and so the, the power of storytelling and fairy tales, it's, it's really, it's cool to be part of a show that's taking that and really grounding it and making it gritty and dark and it's kind of what our whole show is about. It's putting them in the real world. You know, this isn't a story about fairy tales, this is a story about the yeah. real world. The fairy tales are nothing more than the sort of, we, we hinted at them, we hinted at them, you know? There's no actual like CGI and supernatural effects or anything. Next up, the guys were asked, how did you all prepare for these darker stories and how many storylines are we actually going to see on the show? Well, we play two very different characters, so um, we're in the same story line as well. There's three storylines, Little Red Riding Hood, um, Three Little Pigs, and then Hansel and Gretel. We're in the Three Little Pigs storyline, playing two very different characters. Um, uh, for me, I just did a lot of... Uh, thinking about the what-ifs of if, if what happened to my character Jordan happened to me, how would I react? Because some pretty uh, screwed up stuff happens to him in his life when our two characters run into each other. And I just kind of thought about that to get to that dark place. Yeah. Um, and I, I sort of just was able to, um, I guess, uh, yeah, like, for example, like, you know, uh, it's the same thing. I'm just reiterating what he said. Like, you always have to think of it as no matter how big your character is, no matter how dark your character gets, they always have to have a reason for doing it. You can't just do things. You can't be a bad guy without having a reason to be a bad guy. No one really gives a shit and they don't really buy it, you know? Next up, my question was to the guys was, are there any fairy tale stories that you'd love your characters to be involved in at some point, or will they be involved in any others? Are there any stories you'd love for your characters to be involved with in the fairy tale realm at some point? Well, it's an, it's 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 this season is self-contained. So our storyliners, we're not going to suddenly go to and, and go. And I guess the yeah the storylines could intersect, right? But but for the most part, we are in the Three Little Pigs. Yeah, you know that's it. Yeah, we're we're, we're contained within our storyline. Yeah. Next up, the guys were asked in their storyline exactly what themes are going to be explored. We explore themes of loss and grief, uh, themes of uh, of addiction, themes of love, themes of envy. Uh, we almost explore like the seven. No, in a way, yeah. yeah. In a way, yeah. Last question actually was more focused towards Paul because someone asked how you prepare to play a character that has addiction issues like his will on the show. I did my my due diligence in certain. I, I mean, you know, and I, I tried to reference whatever I could um, and make it as personal as possible. You know, um, I, I don't have addiction issues, but I um, I certainly tried to think about situations where I would have wanted to numb myself. You know, and it's a about kind of making it personal. That's ultimately what it always comes down to. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it was a little bit quick with Paul Wesley and James Wolk, but definitely had fun talking to them about Tell Me a Story before it premieres on CBS All Access on Halloween night, October the 31st. Should be a lot of fun to see how they work in the Hansel and Gretel, the Three Little Pigs storylines, and, and what else they might do in the future. Of course, this based on, if I remember correctly, based on a TV series that was in Mexico now being adapted here in the U.S. It was really popular there. So, I mean, we've kind of seen the darker take on the fairy tales things before, thing before. I'm, ex I'm very excited to see how they're going to be doing this, especially when they were talking about not really using any effects. That really perked me up that there was no really CGI or anything like that. So how they're going to be able to work that in without that and using all practical effects. I mean, at certain points... You know, yeah, you you kind of take for granted that it's that at some points there weren't really a whole lot of effects to be had, and shows made it by just fine. But I think grounding it like this 
might actually be what works for this series more than anything. And I guess we'll find out. Halloween night, that'll be our treat for the night, is to watch Tell Me a Story on CBS All Access. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at CBS for letting me be a part of the press room for Tell Me a Story at San Diego Comic-Con and talking to the guys, Paul Wesley and James Wolk. If you want more of our interviews or past shows or anything to do with the show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. We've got some original content on there as well you won't hear on the podcast and go find that out reviews and all kinds of other things. You can also follow us on social media at facebook.com slash down and nerdy at down and nerdy seven five seven on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly, be good to your fellow nerds and keep telling stories. Anna Sheridan, New York times bestselling author of supernatural horror. Missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I turn to the Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil, so to speak. Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Closing fast. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation or any other. I need you to find me. Of course. What else would it be? The Sheridan Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms.